In this episode, Josh and I go deep on addiction. As we come to the proposed end of lockdown in the UK, we're facing an emergent world where many have found comfort and support through various forms of additional consumption, be that alcohol, food, drugs, work, fitness, etc. Josh and I unpack his own personal journey where I ask him about his triggers and replacement strategies. We talk about whether addiction can ever be healthy and what role willpower has to play in keeping addiction at bay. As usual, our talk is unplanned and we dive further into this area and look at topics of class, race, criminalisation and judgement. An important conversation that we hope people will find helpful, useful and resonant. This is 115 Miles with Josh Connolly and Hassan Kaya. Living exactly 115 miles apart, our lives could not have been more different growing up, yet we find ourselves today as really good friends with many similar outlooks and perspectives. Join us on our podcast as we take a topical dive into life, work, culture and everything in between. Morning Josh. How are we doing? Good man, you're rocking the full on branded look today what's going on i've got the branded t-shirt and i've got the branded yeah. move the mic just for the ones that are watching on video look at that very good branded t-shirt branded mug in the background can you see that yeah you were in the, you were in the branded uh thong as well the bra- branded thong <laughs> yeah <laughs> i have mate yeah Bra- no branded y fronts Banded wife has speaking of thongs, what do you think ever happened to Cisco? Look, what happened to Cisco, man? That's what I want to know right now on the 7th of April. <laughs> something but something actually happened to him, didn't it? Did it? Yeah, I can't remember what the story is behind Cisco, but there is a story behind Cisco. That, that okay, there is an well, actual some... story behind him. But that doesn't help our listeners much, right? <laughs> okay, I tell you what, I tell you what, because we always say we're gonna do this. But we never do. We'll say we'll look into it and then we never come back to stuff. So, Josh, seeing as you brought up the story that you can't back up, you need to tell us what happened to Cisco next time we get together. Okay, deal. deal. Absolute deal, yeah. I mean, it's give the people what they want to hear. Exactly. So, <laughs> um, I just fair warning to everyone, Josh has made me do uh, this podcast at an unreasonably early hour. It's eight o'clock. By the time you listen to it, it won't be eight o'clock in the morning, but we're recording. It's eight o'clock in the morning. My kids are asleep next door. So I'm just warning everyone that they could run in and we might have a catastrophe. But as Josh and I just said, you know, this is how we roll uh, in this current year. So we're just we're just two family guys trying to make a living. (laughs) <laughs> that's true that's eight, true eight o'clock's not early for me mate it's not early for me it's early to record a podcast josh that doesn't make don't any act sense. like you oh, don't act like the big one i ran a 10k this morning already yeah i did a joe wicks so Ooh. Ooh. i just did a breathing exercise i'm breathing all day every day <laughs> <laughs> it's not a competition all right all right um how are you doing mate i'm all right i had a very lovely easter very switched off and joyful i'm somewhat nervous about today's episode after i feel like i held you to the fire in the in in in, in the last episode and i feel like there might be some payback because uh i had to listen back to the last podcast which is not something that i always do 
but I definitely held you to the fire uh, a little bit with what we was talking about, which is good. It's what we do. Uh, Keir Starmer could do with listening to it, actually, um, and learning a little bit about holding people to the fire. But yeah, so I'm a little bit nervous about where we're going to go today. Uh, if I'm honest. No need to be no, no need to be nervous. It's definitely not. Uh, you know, it's not a revenge. It's not a, a revenge game I play. But um, yeah, last one was definitely thought provoking for me. You know, I'm a reflector anyway, right? So I'm sort of I have the adrenaline in the moment, and then I'm reflecting afterwards. And um, yeah, it's it's a tri- it's a really really difficult one because you you want to you know when we were talking about you know, how, for me particularly, how I might react if I saw a situation in the street. I want to project that I will, you know, behave in a certain way. I want to think I'll behave in a certain way. And then you've got to kind of, you know, address the reality of of, of a situation. And so to kind of say what you think, right, uh, is 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 a challenging thing. But it's one thing that we always said we would, we would do on this podcast. Mm. So with that in mind... Oh, here we go. Um, <laughs> here we go. I, I, I'm curious, Josh. When was the lo- so since you've been sober? Mm-hmm. When was the last time you came really close to having a drink? In this period, or thought about it, and what led up to that? Like almost thinking, oh, you know, I, I could really fancy something. So I have to kind of break it down a little bit because yeah, uh, there's you there's layers to the question. The original question was when was the last time you came close to having a drink, right? Correct. The answer to that question is I don't know. Perhaps in the first year. Yeah. All right. So it's been it would have been nine years in May. So actually coming close to having a drink. Um, yeah, prob- not in the last eight years. I don't feel like I've been close to having a drink. But what I would caveat that by saying is I still crave escape. So I find other ways to... Um, yeah, don't go there yet. Don't go there yet. Because okay. like, like we'll go there. But what I'm curious about is when was the last time you felt... Not came close, because that would have been the first year. So mm-hmm. you know how important it is mm-hmm. for you and your life. And we'll talk about that. When was, when was the last time you thought about it? Well, uh, last night I was watching the football with Leah. And during the adverts, there was um, an advert for a whiskey. I don't think it existed when I drank whiskey, or maybe it did, but it certainly wasn't on the telly. Uh, and it's like a lady in the advert. She's got a little tumbler with whiskey in it and some ice. And I used to love whiskey like that. I never sipped it in the way that, you know, where they just put it to your lips and you taste it and all that kind of stuff. But in my head, that's what I thought I did. Yeah. Uh, And I said to Leah last night, uh, oh, I would be so bang on that whiskey. I would be, that looks lovely. That does, the way that she's drinking that. Um, So yeah, that happens uh, intermittently. You know, it's not not close or anything like that. I'm just, when I'm honest, I think, Mm. yeah, that looks nice. And then... Often when, if we go out for something to eat and Leah has a cocktail, I I, I often have a mocktail, but um, I do look at the cocktail menu and think I'd love to just go through these one by one and and yeah. try them all. Um, what, what do you think yeah. of um, 
like all these dry gins and like not not dry gins. What they're called, like like non-alcoholic gins and 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 you know and alcohol and spirits that are coming out. Do you think do you think they're good? Um, I I I think a lot of people find them really useful. Yeah, um, they're not for me. That I, I, you know, I, I I sort of always if there was I I don't think there is, but say that Jack Daniels was I loved Jack Daniels. If there was a non-alcoholic Jack Daniels, it would just be, it would be like I'm just dipping my toe in. I just don't, it wouldn't work for me. And then, you know, mm. most other alcohol, so I drank cider when I had pints. I never, ever drank lager, couldn't drink it. Um, I, you know, I didn't enjoy the taste. I felt like I enjoyed the taste because I loved what it was about to do to me and what I and everything that I got from it, but... I don't think to myself, well, I'd love the taste of cider. Let me have one that's non-alcoholic so I can get the taste. So they do absolutely nothing for me mm. at all. And do you think it's dangerous, say, for a recovering addict to dip their toe into something like that? Because it's almost giving you some level of connection back into that world, right? But without the alcohol, but the taste and stuff, could that end up being a bit of a gateway back in? Because you're sort of almost trying to replicate something. I think everybody's different, right? So for me, it would be. But I know lots of people that use them and it's really useful for them. My relationship with, with alcohol was... Like, you know, I didn't quit because I, I stopped enjoying it or anything like that. I loved alcohol. I mean, I loved it, right? It would be like, for me to have a non-alcoholic drink, it would be like the woman of your dreams, your, like, childhood sweetheart who you're in love with, leaves you and then takes you back out on a date but says you're not allowed to get near me and we're never getting back together, but let's go out for dinner. It would just be, it just wouldn't work. But I don't believe everybody that quits alcohol quits for the same reason as I did. I think some people quit because their relationship had got a little bit toxic and, and actually they're just choosing sober life. That's, that's, that, however, is not my truth. So for somebody like me, I would advise not doing it. Mm. Um, but not everybody that quits alcohol is like me. Yeah. Um. And what and what keeps you away from drink and drugs? Um, what I have now, what my life's become without it, uh, without, uh, yeah, with, without using them, I look at everything that I've got now and just think it's not even worth it. Um, and I know how I, I know you said we're going to go into this later, but I know how much I crave escape. So uh, I just know that I'd never be able to do it sensibly. And if I could do it sensibly, I'd still be doing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I we've known each other a few years now, and we're mm -hmm. very close. And I can sort of now I think I can spot some of your addictive personality in some other stuff that you do. For example, I think it's showing up a, in a healthy way, but it could go unhealthy for some people, but in your exercise. Yeah. It, am I right? Well, 100%, mate. 
like hundred percent. You know, and people people say these things like oh, I'm sort of all or nothing. Yeah, I've got addictive personality and stuff like that. Maybe we'll get an opportunity to unpack those kind of statements today. That's not, you know, I believe all of that for me at least is traced back to my sort of my difficulty with being present. And when I get myself bang in shape, I get myself completely addicted to to what I'm doing. So uh, there's this whole healthy addiction. Is there such thing as a healthy addiction? I'd probably argue that there's that there's not. But what I would say is that with all addictions, there's always a payoff. Mm. Yeah, there's always a benefit. And if you want to understand addiction, you have to look at what the benefit is. What benefit do people get when they when they obsessively use the drug or the drug of choice, whatever that may be, or behavior? What's the benefit? And I think when you start to look at that, you realize you can understand addiction a lot deeper. I mean, is addiction in itself inherently like it's a bad it's a it's negative isn't it like there's there's is there anything positive to addiction uh, even no. the healthy stuff addiction is basically you're 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 stuck with it you know like it's like you know i don't i don't know that there's a there's a positive benefit to the word addiction no but some people will say look i became addicted to fitness and i lost loads of weight and i got myself in shape so it was a positive addiction people might say uh i get slightly addicted to my work and i've built an amazing business out of that but uh now there's lots of kind of we can medicalize addiction in the way that some people do so the way that i talk about addiction i often i often get a bit of kickback from certain parts of the addiction community that want to really medicalize it and it be here's what addiction is you need to tick these boxes and then it becomes addiction otherwise it's not I, I don't buy into that I think it's a sliding scale like everything else and um, I take the definition of <laughs> I always bring him up but Dr. Gabor Mate and he says anything that I do for temporary relief that has an adverse effect in the long run but that I continue to do anyway that's what, what we're talking about when we're addiction so it's that it's that piece about it having an adverse impact in the long run uh that for me kind of makes it on the addiction scale yeah i mean the thing about addiction to fitness or addiction to work is it's still unhealthy because you said there's always a cost right mm -hmm. so addiction to being in the gym means let's say if you're uh, you know if you've got a family there's a there's a payoff right like you're always out or if you're if you're addicted to work of course, there are um, benefits to all of that, right? So you might lose weight, you might get fit, you might get stronger if you're you know, addicted to um, fitness, work, there's kind of a financial payoff or you've grown something. Um, but being addicted means you can't pull yourself away from it, right? Yeah, it and means, there's a cost, yeah. And there's yeah, a cost yeah. not just to yourself or benefit just to yourself, but the benefit to yourself comes at a cost to others. For example, when you were addicted, there was a massive cost to your family, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And there's different, there's varying different degrees of cost. And the one thing that I say, by the way, is if you took uh, uh, a 40 year old, two 40 year old humans, right? And the first one has built an empire, completely addicted to their work and to their businesses. They've built this massive empire and they go, I've built this successful business, multi-million pound business. It's cost me a couple of marriages. And I, you know, I did quite love both of them. So it's come at a cost. So I had two failed marriages, but look at what I've got, yeah? Then people might go, well, it's a shame about the marriages, but wow, what a success. 
Then if you look at the second man and he says, you know, I've managed to keep my pain and my trauma at bay by drinking alcohol most days. That's cost me two marriages, right? But at least I've made it here and, 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 and I don't feel as much pain as I perhaps would. And people would go, why didn't you just stop on the first marriage? Right? So there's two, there's two different, there's two addictions, right? They could, they could be driven by exactly the same thing. But society was is much less likely to stigmatize one than it is to stigmatize the other, right? So, like you say, there's always a cost, and the subtle ones, and because we're talking about sliding scale here, so the subtle ones with um, with uh, exercise, for example, might be I've decided I'm going to go on a a run every morning, and I wake up one morning and my wife says I've been up all night. I'm I'm poorly and the little one's poorly as well and we've been up all night and I go ah oh, that must be horrible when I get back from my run yeah I'll take them off you and then I go out for an hour right now you could say dedication or you could say this is getting in the way now of the way that you should show up to life yeah so that's like a very simple way of putting it but there's still a cost Right in that moment, I should be like, "Who cares about the run? It doesn't matter." Right? That hasn't happened, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me I'm just, just wondering. <laughs> you just went out for what? Are you just giving us your life story from this morning? <laughs> that, that genuinely hasn't yeah. happened. Not in recent. No, life, I know. Anyway, but. No, no. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, you know, we're recording at this time because of our, you know, because of you know commitments to our family and you know and needing to make it all work which is what we do yeah um what role has willpower played in the last nine years um i don't know what is willpower what what, what is willpower? yeah i'm asking you no i'm asking you what is do it you think? is it the ability to exercise my will if that's willpower then it's central to it, but, but or is it or is it the prison of discipline, and and beating yourself up? You know, like because I think one t sometimes people it's like people talk about willpower. Like if you fail, you've got no willpower, so mm -hmm. therefore you have to stay disciplined. You have to kind of you know if you if you if you've been on a diet and you eat a chocolate bar at the end of the day, like like you if you say that's my will, therefore I'm choosing to do that. That's a really powerful way to look at it but most people go oh, I've got no willpower and I'm eating the chocolate bar and you beat yourself up having and actually you spent 80% of your day doing really well mm. and then you might have a chocolate bar at the end of the day but you make it all about that last thing right what about if I said this then do you know how much willpower it took to hold down a job and drink and use drugs in the way that I did for 10 years massive so do you know what I mean so yeah. if we want to talk about willpower you know, to, I mean, I was in such a bad way when I was drinking in the way that I did. I turned up at work one Monday morning, went into my boss's office. I worked in a factory and I went in to apologize for not turning up on the Saturday because I'd been on a bender. I couldn't remember where I'd been for three days. And I walked into my boss's office and I said, look, I just want to apologize about Saturday. And he said, he interrupted me and said, listen, it's fine but you can't turn up to work in that state, all right? And I don't want to see it again. And I'd gone in, in, in there to apologize for not turning up. I, I, I forgot, I'd obviously t turned up at work in, in a, 
an awful state and he'd sent me home, right? So uh, I worked the rest of that day in an awful state, feeling like I didn't want to be here, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so what do we mean when we say willpower? Because I'll say that people are trapped, that, that are trapped in addiction are exercising something that we might call willpower, right? Mm. So I don't know, the, line, the, the, the lines are blurred, but um, I would say in recent years, certainly in the last six or seven, I don't feel like I'm quitting alcohol. So I don't, you know, I don't feel like I have to make sure that I don't drink today. So in that sense, there's no, it's not about willpower. Yeah, it, it, it's funny, right? I don't know if you know this about me, but I used to smoke. Did you know that? Did I tell you I used to smoke? I, I started no. smoking, I used to smoke cigarettes. I started when I was about 13 at school. And then bar a couple of few moments, I was pr pretty much smoking solidly until I had like my first kid. And not really, like, I wasn't, yeah, yeah. I what, wasn't you, like, what smoked, you weren't a social smoker, you smoked every day. Yeah, I didn't smoke loads, but I'd probably smoke, I don't know, uh, I don't know, like seven, eight cigarettes a day, probably. I mean, not loads and loads, but not that, not insignificant. And, uh, and then, and then I gave up when, obviously when, when Erin was pregnant and we both gave up in sort of almost in solidarity. And then after baby was born, started smoking again, and then the next one came. And so I'd sort of, in, the, in, in those years, just kind of in and out. And I always used to do this, um, this thing when um, I'd come home from the hospital um, after the baby was born, I'd stand out in the garden and I'd just have a cigarette, like, like just myself collecting my thoughts. Okay, dad, first time. And then it would be like, okay, I've got two now. Shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Jesus, if you if you did that every time, uh, <laughs> um, but on the third one, I, I had a, I had a cigarette, and I honestly thought, listen, what the hell are you doing? Like I, I thought, like like that, I've got enough. I've got to be worrying about. I don't need to be doing this. Mm. And that was the that was it. That was it. And I'd always convince myself, because I, I loved smoking. I loved it. I loved after a meal or in those moments or, you know, you're, you're in the pub and, you know, and then you go out with your mates. It's a bit of a social thing. I used to love it, right? And so I thought, I'm always going to, it's always going to have a hold on me. I knew that I wouldn't always smoke, but I always felt like it was going to have a hold on me. And then that was the day. It just And I'm not bragging, like, because I know it's very difficult for people to come away from it. But that was, a, it was a switch for me. And that's it. And the thing is, I don't think about it ever, ever. It just doesn't, I just don't, I don't walk past and smell a, the whiff of a cigarette. Um, it, it just doesn't get me. Now, what you said about seeing the lady with the, with, the, with the glass and the whiskey, sometimes in a movie, if I see like a character, <laughs> just like have, have a cigarette, like in a moment, like, um, but only just to kind of appreciate a bit of nostalgia, not like, oh, I want to go out and get yeah. some cigarettes, you know. Um, so, yeah, but it's it's gone. I, like you, it's like I don't, you know, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but, you know, I don't I don't feel like I'm always battling the the 
yeah. addiction to nicotine or you know or mm. wanting it because because the 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 physical addiction uh i don't sort of buy into the way that we've been sold addiction for so long i read a book by johan harry called chasing the scream right and and if you actually look into the history of how and why we're taught addiction in the way that we are it can be traced back to the same thing as most things which is power and race so when we were taught about crack and heroin right it was originally in america right back in when it was 80s yeah when yeah when it first when we were first sort of taught about it it was it was uh they made out that it was like crazy black men on crack that are going to come and rape white women ronald reagan era yeah yeah trump actually yeah yeah so it was that kind of uh that's the era when we would then start to we were taught that you know if you just do a little bit of this you're going to become so addicted and and so like it's slightly different like physical addiction does exist you can become alcohol by the way the most addictive drug out there is alcohol Mm-hmm. alcohol being the drug that you can become so physically addicted to that if you stop it will kill you mm-hmm. that's not true mm-hmm. of heroin or crack mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. get off both of those on your own by locking yourself in a room broadly speaking right your bot that you can't do that with alcohol you couldn't lock yourself in a room if you were fully because you'd have a seizure and die right if you were addicted mm-hmm. that much um so so we we learned that we're so become so addicted to things like smoking and then our brain, because it starts to uh, get this idea of what smoking is, people go, it's habit, right? It's ha- it's not habit. It's nothing to do with habit because if it was, you could quit easily by just pretending to smoke a pen. Doesn't It doesn't work, right? Yeah. And the, the only physical addiction to smoking lasts about two to three days maximum and it's a slight empty feeling in the stomach. Hmm. Everything else is signals driven by your brain out of fear. So when you used to smoke or and you were gonna get on a plane, all of a sudden you're like, I need a fag, yeah? In the morning, I used to think to myself, I, I, the reason I'll never quit smoking is because I just love a fag in the morning with a cup of coffee. And you people that don't smoke, you don't get that luxury. But I get the same luxury now by just having a cup of coffee in the morning because I don't need that little pang of nicotine to get myself back level. So actually, after two or three days, if you're experiencing any physical withdrawal, physical, mental, or whatever from smoking, from nicotine, it's all in your head. It's made up by your head. And so when you start to understand that kind of stuff on about addiction, this is what I mean. You start to realize it's, it's nothing to do with the substance. If it was just to do with the substance, detox would work for everybody that gets addicted to drugs. We'd put them into detox. They become physically clear of drugs. They come out of detox. They never need to use it again. But they do. And I used to do the same with alcohol. Yeah. And the craziest thing that I used to do was get sober for a couple of weeks and then drink again. When I drank again after two weeks, I was as physically sober as I am today. So so when I picked up that drink with the belief that it was gonna be different this time, I was sober. It was nothing to do with alcohol. It was something to do with my brain. It was something to do with me. Whatever it was that made me reach for alcohol in the way that I did, that was my issue. 
And that's the stuff that I've been dealing with over the last eight to nine years. Now, the physical component would be perhaps that when I drank alcohol, I've believed that it kind of, I, I, I reacted to it differently to people. Then, you know, th then I would be off on one, right? And, and I think that's true to a degree. But if that was the only problem, then my, my solution would be easy. Just don't have a drink. But my problem is something happens inside of me that makes me seek that instant escape. And that's why I think we look at addiction wrong. We always try and treat the symptom. We always try and say, treat the symptom rather than saying addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the reaction to the problem. So then we have to go deeper and ask what that what that problem is. Yeah, and the symptom will only the symptom um, treatment means that you just are always living on the edge right like if you if you're only de dealing with the symptoms that you know um those those people um haven't done the deep work that kind of helps them rewire and understand what's going on because you're right like you know it's 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 those things that you it's those triggers that you build build up not only from yourself but what you see other people do right so when mm -hmm. i started smoking people used to say Oh, like there's nothing like a cigarette after a meal to help you digest it, and that's always and that's always you know. So people like people used to go outside after a meal, or like in the middle, and and uh, of of a meal, and then go and uh, have a cigarette, and then come back, and you know, and it was almost a social thing, right? And it just and that's a trigger. Or if you're feeling stressed, like like that's going to help you calm things down, and you just kind of you know build up those things. But it's all mental, you know, mm. not all, right? Like. We've agreed that there's physical. And if you don't do the work to understand that, then that's... And, and, and again, right, that comes back to then the way that we would diagnose addiction within our society. And the same is true of mental health, right? The mental health struggles that we see. What we might... Uh, I'll start with addiction, but what we might diagnose as drinking too much alcohol. Yeah. Who, who, who's like, who comes up with what's too much? Probably a middle-class white man sat on the board somewhere who says let's create a tick list and then we'll we'll break down what 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 addiction is right what's addiction what's substance abuse let's get all these different categories and it's the same with an anxiety disorder right who diagnoses what is disordered well essentially it's there's a tick list and that's come about by probably a bunch of middle class white men sat around the table now if you take, I'll go to him again, Dr. Gabor Mate's book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Now, he worked on, on the downtown east side in Vancouver, right? Uh, and, and he had some of the most, you know, people with the, the worst addictions. Let me give a little, I'm going to go deep here, but let me give a little trigger warning because I'm going to talk a little bit about sexual abuse, right? But he said, right, in the, he says those people in downtown Vancouver that were used to come to his drug rehab rehabilitation center he said every single one of them had experienced a level of trauma and he said you know people talk about needing to go to a rock bottom he says what's their rock bottom they've lost everything every single one of them has been abused in some way when they were a child right and he said the moment he fully understood addiction he fully comprehended addiction in a way that he'd never comprehended it before there was a lady that was part of the center there, right? She was a heroin addict, terrible heroin problem, right? As a child, she was repeatedly abused by her father. And one of, he used to get his friends round to abuse her with him. 
and one of his rituals was when that when they'd left he would spit on her right she came she'd been out one day and she came back to the center she was screaming she was in a terrible state she was going crazy shouting just kill me i want to die i don't want she was going like he they couldn't control they had to restrain her on the bed right they managed to get out of her why was she in this terrible state when she was walking home, because she was a quote-unquote druggie, somebody had spat at her and called her a dirty druggie. And it had triggered her to a, to a state that she was... They could not bring her back down to anything level. Gabor Mate said at the moment when she was being restrained on her bed, he knew where she kept her heroin. And in that moment, as a physician, he said the only thing that I knew was going to take the pain away and get her back to a state where life felt somehow manageable was to get her heroin out and give her her heroin. So, and that's what him and the nurse did. Mm. So when we talk about addiction, I know that's an awful story that I've given you, but let's get real here. Who the hell, am, who the hell are we to say people's addictions are justified or unjustified? What else would you do for that woman in that moment? Who justifies what's in that, what's, what's, you know, too much? Who can justify, who could say in that moment that that young girl, right, was a criminal? Because that's what we say, if you take heroin, you're a criminal. How can we criminalize somebody like that? Because if I was her... I can't sit here today and say that I wouldn't be using drugs to anesthetize the pain in the way that she does. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, it's it's a it's a it's a such a broad uh, sort of multi-faceted conversation, right? Because um, you know that there would be a bunch of people that are listening that would say under no circumstances would we perpetuate the problem by giving more heroin. So, mm. so I, I, I'm with you, I, I, I'm with you, right, in this, in that, in that moment, that horrific trauma, that wasn't the moment where you suddenly go in and be the savior and go, right, you, you know, like, we're just gonna take it and you have to ride it out, like we're gonna be, you know, because a lot of this, again, it's down to kind of class and race and, and, and structures, right? But a lot of it is, is determined by a particular part of society, which is often usually middle-class white men. Uh, and that's just kind of how it's been through time. So it's not kind of demonizing them now, but it's just like, that's just the way it's happened. So a lot of this, you know, say for example, the, the laws around whether a woman's right to choose uh, uh, to give birth or not to give birth, um, to have a baby, to not have a baby, it's decided by men, yeah. you know, and, so, um, you know, so I think, but you will have people that's, that will be looking at this side of the argument saying that Dr. Gabor Mate was wrong in that situation. Mm. Let, let me give you another story, completely different story, right? I crushed my foot so bad in a tail lift of a lorry that I had to have uh, three of my toes on my left foot amputated. When I got to hospital, uh, they did an x-ray and the x-rays didn't show that my foot had, my foot, had, my three of my toes had been crushed so bad, they were basically dust. So that when they did the x-ray, they stayed in the shape that they were and they couldn't pick up that they were that badly crushed. 
So they took me off of all painkillers and just gave me cocodamol and put me in a room and said I'd go home the next day. I started to uh, get into, I started hallucinating and all stuff like that because I was in so much pain, right? After 12 hours of being in hospital, in the morning, I got myself up to go to the toilet. Now, I was in such a bad state, I thought I need to escape from the hospital because they're holding me captive, right? True story. On the way out of the toilet, I they'd done an operation and put two pins in my big toe because they thought that my big toe was just broken, right? On the way out of the toilet, I banged my foot on the door, right? And uh, basically, I started screaming and I started shouting, kill me now, Just ki I want to die, just kill me, I can't deal with it anymore. Yada, 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 yada. Anyway, they ran, they pressed the emergency, a doctor came in, they unwrapped my foot and my foot had gone black, right? Because basically the blood had been rejected at the toes because they were so badly crushed. In that moment, the doctor straight away administered me with enough morphine, mm. yeah? That the pain began to stop almost instantly. Now I can tell you that heroin is basically morphine. So, so it's not a too dissimilar story, but it's a physical pain a physical pain that people could go, yeah, you needed morphine then. You need, we needed to give you drugs right away, straight away, yeah, to deal with the pain. Now, mm -hmm. the same people that heard the first story and said it's wrong to give the drugs then, are they still saying, no, you shouldn't have given the medicine, you should have just dealt with the pain? It would have eased eventually, it would have. Yeah. It might have taken days, weeks, months, Yeah. but it would have. Yeah. But physical pain that we can all relate to, that we can all find some kind of barometer for. When I talk about crushing my feet that bad, everyone goes, give me any painkiller you can give me. Yeah. But when it's an internal trauma, yeah. for some reason, because we have no measuring stick or something that we can measure our own relevance against, people say we can't do it. Yeah. And this is why, by the way, if somebody, a homeless person came up to you on the street and asked you for money, and you said, what's it for? And they said, well, drugs. Would you give it to them? I would not. Why not? But Why not? That's the answer most people would give. Why not? Judgment, mate. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm being honest. Like, I, yeah. I but also, say, like, saviour. A little bit like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to add to a thing that makes it life worse for them. That's what, that's what, I would that would go through my head. Yeah, and that, so, but that's a judgment. I don't ask. Though. Yeah, yeah, it is a judgment. I don't ask because it's mm. none of my business. Yeah. So if someone asks me for money, actually, I, I don't ask because it um, it isn't my business. And, yeah. However, if they said I want it for drugs, I think I'd find it more difficult to go. Hey, yeah, have some money for drugs. I just. I'm just being honest. Because, right? yeah, yeah, which you need to be, which is the answer that most people would give. Most well-meaning, respectful people would give. But actually what you're saying there, and you said, because I don't want to make it worse for him, how do you know that him going and getting drugs is making the situation worse? I don't. Now, now people might say it's going to prolong his situation, but we don't know his life story, right? It, it, it's only that certain drugs, I say certain drugs because one of the worst ones out there is alcohol, Certain drugs are criminalized. If you take yeah. heroin in our society, you're a criminal. If you take alcohol in our society, you're normal. Now, what's the difference between the two? One is criminalized. Yeah? People will say to me, yeah, but do you know what happens on these farms and stuff where they make opiates? 
That's only because it's criminal. The same thing would be happening for alcohol if it was criminal because it would be underground and it would be being done by criminals. Yeah, which is prohibition era. Like, you know, like in, in, in the US in the 20s, like it was it was uh, unlawful to yeah. produce alcohol. And, so, uh, and, 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 and heroin's, I keep using heroin as the extreme example, but let's look at cannabis. Let's look at cannabis. Mm. Look, I'm not in the game of comparing drugs, but I, I, for the sake of what we're talking about, alcohol is a million times worse than cannabis. Yeah. In every every there is, I, I would sit across the table from anyone. anyone. You've done it on TV, haven't you? <laughs> I did do it you on actually, TV. Yeah, yeah you did across, it on the TV. I sat show. across but from Peter Hitchin. Hitchens. Um, yeah. I mean, that's it. You know, like it is. Look, there, there is industry, there is... So there's money that you get from production and sale of alcohol, right? Globally, right? Uh-huh. There's the taxes, right? And, and then people think, okay, well, the trade-off is, okay, health costs versus those things. But it's not just that. It's, it's culture. So it's like, uh, it's like product placement. It's like uh, in urban culture it's like it's in socializing and party like there's it's immeasurable the 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 value at which alcohol is seen within the world's economies right um and so you can't it's not straightforward right so you were talking about um morphine and heroin you know the difference is that it's morphine it's called morphine yeah. So when you were saying, you know, um, should you have not been given it, those people would probably have said, no, 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 it's morphine. It's a, you know, it's it's medically uh, proven to provide pain relief in this moment. But yeah, it's the same as heroin, right? It's just heroin is is the is is the dirty thing that lower class, lower income people of particular kind of demographics take. Therefore. It should never have been given. There are people that just will look at the, the two situations and say they're completely different. Your yeah. situation and that lady's situation. Yeah. And, and and the way that you avoid addiction, in my my opinion, is emotionally available adults for children. If children feel loved uh, and they feel they have a nurturing available adult to help them comprehend their emotions when they're a child, they won't get addicted to drugs or alcohol, whether you sell them on the shelf in Tesco's or whether you make them illegal, healthy, balanced young people won't get addicted to them. They won't. Mm. That's my beliefs. Very, like, slightly controversial, my beliefs are. I wouldn't, by the way, I wouldn't legalise drugs, but I would decriminalise them in the way that Portugal have, for example. Uh, I would would decriminalise them. So have you ever heard... uh, the Rat Park story. No. So one of the ways that we found out about how addictive drugs are is by tests that we used to do on rats. So they would get a rat in a cage, get it, like give it some heroin, only heroin, get it addicted to heroin and then offer it heroin and water and these rats would always go back to the heroin, couldn't get them back on the water. Then a scientist come along and said, well, hang on a minute, all these rats that we do it, they're all in isolation in a cage on their own. They keep going back to the heroin. So they so they made Rat Park, right? Which was a massive thing with loads of rats in it, right? 
They could do what they want, have as much sex as they want, connect with all different rats, right? There was all loads of space, all of that kind of stuff. They got some of them addicted to heroin, yeah? Got them on heroin. Uh, and then they, they, they put get offered them heroin or water. Something ridiculous, like nearly 90, 95% of the rats came straight off of the heroin straight away and went straight back to the water. So they said, well, look, with rats, it's, it's to do with loneliness and isolation. And they said the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection, right? So then they said, well, this is amazing with rats. If only we could do it with adults. And then in Vietnam, it was a ridiculous percentage. I can't remember, so don't quote me on mm. it. But it was like something mm. like 80, 90% of the soldiers over there were using heroin. Mm. They stopped, they wouldn't use cannabis because the dogs would pick up cannabis over there. So they were using heroin to manage the ways that they felt based on what they were seeing. Yeah. And there was panic in America because they knew it was happening and they were like, we're going to have all these heroin addicts coming back. 75 or it might have even been, I don't know, 85% of those soldiers that were fully addicted, to, addicted, quote unquote, to heroin in the, in the war in Vietnam, when they came back to American society and integrated with their families and friends and reconnected and became a you know civilized person within society, they quit heroin straight away. No help, no support, just reconnection and feeling part of society again. So 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 Rat Park happened with humans. So what happened mm. to the other 15%? Well, they didn't feel like a respectable part of society and perhaps didn't have family to connect back in with. So yeah. or, or, or they were dealing with trauma so deep. Not only, you know, it could have even been preceding. Some of that trauma could have been preceding their, their childhood. Time, but, the tra but the trauma was so deep anyway, you know, for, for that 15%. Exactly, you know. exactly. And so when you start to look at most, most addiction is driven by some level of shame, childhood shame and childhood trauma... When you criminalize drugs, what you actually do is reshame these people, you disconnect them from society, you reshame them, and you actually treat what's going on with everything that drives why they're in addiction. And we say, why do they keep going back? And the reason they keep going back is because what we're trying to use to prevent them from, 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 from going back into addiction is the very thing that's drove them into it. So of course they go back. If you're suffering, if you were abused by your mum or your dad for your whole childhood and you become a heroin addict as a result, society will disconnect you from everybody else, make you different and shame you for it by throwing you in jail. Mm. So, and then we'll go, why don't you just stop? What, like, you know, and we go, prison wasn't enough. We put them in prison for two years. That didn't stop them because prison is nothing compared to being abused by somebody who's supposed to look after you when you're a child. It's yeah. nothing in comparison. Yeah. It doesn't even come close. So, so we got that for me. We, uh, you know, we've got to understand addiction in 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 those parameters, and we yeah. don't. And it's really yeah. hard concept to get your head around. And there'll be people that are listening to me saying that I've, you know, that, that will think I've sort of lost the plot or will find it very difficult to digest or, you know, uh, understand what I'm trying to say. Look, I mean, I wanted to bring this topic up today because I think we are going to, and I'm not apologising because we've gone deep on this, right? Mm. And um, because I think there was there's a lot of talk about you know coming back out of lockdown and looking forward to you know socializing and come back i think there's going to be a long-term effect of 
what we've just gone through, right? Mm -hmm. We've talked about the impact on kids. I think we're going to emerge out of this thing with a lot of people who have become addicted to something or other, right? So some people might say, you know, you look at some people who have like really focused on health and so people will just look at them and go, oh, it's amazing. You've, you know, you're, you're looking great and all this sort of stuff, right? And that's good. But then there's people who have been drinking more, been taking, you know, drugs, been smoking, been, you know, whatever it is. Mm. And so um, I just wanted to have a conversation with somebody who, you know, I trust and, uh, 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 and respect and admire, but who's been through a journey and talks about this. Yeah. And... Um, it is far-reaching, right? Because actually, um, cr- you know, decriminalizing versus legalizing is a, a whole other topic, right? Mm. But decriminalizing is is really an important conversation because it has such a knock-on effect on society. Mm. You know that actually, we would just if we started to just look at humans as humans, right? If we didn't just um, criminalize young, predominantly young men young black men in this country and in America in particular mm. with these archaic laws, then they'd have better chances in society. Yeah. Now, I know that there's going to be lots and lots of people probably don't listen to our podcast, if we're really honest, um, uh, you know, who have different and opposing views, but th- th- but we've got to have the conversation. So thank you for kind of going deep on that one. Yeah. Um, I had some other things that I wanted to talk about, but I think um, this was this was an important conversation, and you know, um, all, all of it can be saved for uh, a, another time. So, with that, I want to bring us to reasons to be cheerful. So, uh, do you want to go first today? No, no, you can go first. I'll let you go first. All right, all right. I don't have a title for it really um, today, but I'm just really, I'm very, very cheerful and grateful for the return of the hospitality industry right and what and i don't mean you know of course i want to go out and have a bite to eat and have a sit in a you know in a pub with some mates but um you know it's close to home my brother-in-law's a chef an excellent chef he's been doing it for 20 plus years he is a he is a master you know at what he does um and uh during lockdown he uh was uh, he left, you know, he was made redundant from uh, a restaurant that he was working at for 14 years. Like, gave blood, sweat and tears for that place. Mm. And I'm, you know, there's no, there's no, um, everyone had to suffer badly in, 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 in that industry. But what, um, but he started a new job today, which was uh, incredible. And what I saw um, with him was, uh, you know, he went through, the last year, just questioning and, and, and losing confidence, right? Because the thing that he knows so well and is so good at, uh, he couldn't apply. Mm. And so he, uh, so all the people in the hospitality industry had to turn to other things, right? They almost had to delegitimize their craft and just do what they needed to do. Mm. So that might be, you know, p- becoming an Amazon driver or, or something else or, de- you know, whatever, a courier. Um, but the minute that it, uh, and there was nothing. No one would look at him. There was no kind of hospitality jobs, no restaurant jobs, mm. no you know, chef jobs. But the minute things started to open up, people could see the level of his excellence in the kitchen. And he's he's had several offers. Yeah. 
but he started his job today. And it just, I, I just, I, I'm, I, it's, it's bigger than my brother-in-law. It's, it's just you have a whole industry of people that had been delegitimized by this situation. I'm, just, mm-hmm. I'm not blaming anybody. A little bit of blame for maybe uh, Boris and his government, but you know. Um, but the point is, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to feel legitimized again because of the, they can yeah. do their craft. It's not just. I think people look at the hospitality industry and say that it's. It's it's like oh you know you got you know waiters and rest you know it's like that there's no craft involved but there is these are people mm. that have spent years building their careers and um, so I'm really really pleased for the return of the hospitality industry yeah no no and, and look what a good one and uh, my wife's just opened the door as well because she's about to head off to work so if the kids come in for, with my reasons to be cheerful then uh, you know why yeah um, my reasons to be cheerful is the gym's opening on Monday, mate. I can't, <laughs> we talk about, we've done a little bit about addiction to, to this kind of stuff, but it's, you know, what do, me and my wife, what we do to kind of wind down is the gym. You know, neither of us really drink. I say really, I don't drink at all. My wife rarely drinks. And so the gym's, the gym's being closed has been like massive to us. And so for them to just be open again, we, we honestly cannot wait. Hmm. And, Look, I, I think it ties in as well with the hospitality and everything opening. I, I think there's a real positive feel about where we're heading with this stuff. I think if you read the news, you, you can still feel relatively negative if you're not careful. But it certainly feels like we are, we're on that curve now towards getting some kind of normality back. And yeah, I can't wait for the gyms to open and I can't wait to, to, to sit outside in the freezing cold outside a restaurant <laughs> and take your blankets some, and eat some food yeah so yeah mate uh looking forward to it you're going to get ripped from next week onwards yeah That's mate the plan yeah the the six pack will be coming back uh brilliant well <laughs> i look forward to that for you. Um, all right, listen, um, I know I know we went deep on addiction today, uh, but I think it was a really important conversation. Um, I think uh, a lot of people will uh, relate to it in some form, even if they yeah. might not consider themselves addicts or, or whatever. I think they can understand where it's coming from. So I um, appreciate you diving into that with me today, Josh. And, yeah. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. Really, really did enjoy it. We had a we had a massive debate me and you in the week on WhatsApp uh, about Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson, and I thought that's where we were going today. And I couldn't wait to start tearing in. Um, yeah, maybe we've saved our listeners uh, by keeping that one to WhatsApp. Uh, but it's my turn to lead in two weeks' time, so so hold tight. <laughs> All right, man. Look forward to it. Have a great day. Thanks again for listening to 115 Miles with Josh Connolly and Hassan Khan.